I know we're a little bit behind on this, but I don't care because I finally finished season two of Mindhunter. And Tyler, you have no idea how frustrated I am that you haven't watched season one yet and that you haven't started season two. Listen, I am someone who I enjoy true crime, but this podcast I get a lot of true crime from. And when I want to watch true crime stuff, I would so much rather watch a documentary than like even a not a mockumentary, that's the wrong word. Very much um, the wrong word. Than a docudrama or something. Or I guess I guess it's not even a docudrama. It's, it's just not a based even that. on based on true events kind of thing. Kind of. Kind of based on true events. That's very loose because it's based on the novel Mindhunter by John Douglas, and he was one of the FBI profilers mm. who helped develop profiling and coined the term serial killer. And, you know, he and his partner are who the characters in Mindhunter, the Netflix show, are based on. But a lot of the things that happen in their real life are not true. But the killers that they interview are true. Like, that is true, and some of the dialogue, like, real-life dialogue is actually in Mindhunter. So it's very much interwoven with truth and fantasy. Yeah, but, but I would I would rather watch a documentary. Well, it's so good. The first couple of episodes are a bit slow, but I promise you guys, if you just stick it out, it's a fantastic season. Um, and I did post on our Instagram a couple weeks ago about the cases that we've covered of the killers that they interviewed in Mindhunter. So go over and check that out on our social media if you're interested in hearing more about like Charles Manson, Jerry Brudos, um, Richard Speck. Tyler did that one in our dormitory murders. And Tyler also covered John Wayne Gacy, which there's a little bit of a hint at that potentially he'll be in season three. So um, that's one you should check out as well. On the same note, Tyler, I know you haven't watched this movie and I actually haven't told you this, but you have got to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's a Quentin Tarantino movie with Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. And listeners, if you, I'm about to give a big spoiler. So if you don't want to hear it, fast forward about two minutes. Okay. So I didn't realize this movie had to do with the Manson murders. Oh, I didn't either. Yes. However, again, major, major spoiler alert. Tyler, I'm sure you don't mind if I tell you the ending. So they twist it. They have everything that happens with the Manson murders and Sharon Tate and Leonardo DiCaprio's character is her neighbor. And they play the whole thing up like it's about to happen. You learn about Tex and, and all of them at the compound. And then they fucking go over to Rick Dalton's house, which is Leonardo DiCaprio's character. And they attack him, but Brad Pitt's there, and he's like, "Uh uh-uh, and kills them all. So it's like the opposite. So then he ends up going over to Sharon Tate's apartment, and Jay, which is one of the victims, is over there. And the reason I bring this up is because I have a lot of conflicting feelings with the fact that they completely changed historical events while also intertwining truth. So it's a long, that's what made me think of this. So I hate Quentin Tarantino and I I'm sorry, really don't what? like Yeah, and I really don't like Leonardo DiCaprio. Like Quentin Tarantino's movies just to me are very heavily um I, I don't know glorify is the right word because I don't think it's to that extent, but very strong in like violence against women and stuff. It, it's just I'm I don't I don't like it. I'm not a fan. I don't like Quentin Tarantino. He's also a cocky asshole who gets pissed off 
whenever anyone questions his artistic decisions. Or I, I say this as if I know him. I don't. <laughs> um, and But he also is one of those people who thinks he like deserves every award he's ever nominated for. I'm not, not here for it. And I'm so fucking tired of Leonardo DiCaprio being portrayed as just this cool, suave guy when he literally will just date, like, an 18-year-old, and that's for some reason normal, and as soon as she gets old for him, you know, 21, 22, moves on to the next 18-year-old, I don't like it. It grosses me out. Not a fan of it. So, that's, that's my rant. Well, welcome to Hollywood. Tons of actors date young people and then dump them when they think they're getting too old. Also, welcome to the world. A lot of people are pretty crappy and do that, so... That's true. But I I do really like Quentin Tarantino, and I love Leonardo DiCaprio, so I'm very much on the opposite end of that. I'm sure he is a cocky asshole. Again, welcome to Hollywood. Yeah. Oh, no. And, like, the movies and them as, like, actors and directors and producers and stuff, like, that, the opinion is separated from that. But it's a fantastic movie. So, great to see Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt sharing the screen together. To me... They're two very fantastic actors, and this movie, they they both did incredible. Also, Lena Dunham is in the movie, and I just, I love her. Always. I love her so much. See, I've never seen Girls before, either. I recommend it. So I've never really seen anything that Lena's in. She was in Taylor Swift's music video for Bad Blood. That's about all I've seen her in. Well, hello, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And I went to the movies recently. And I haven't gone to the movies in like two years. (laughs) Um, But with that, this is episode 69. Honestly, just had to say it because it's episode 69. Wow. Okay. Also, why didn't we pick a topic that was like six murders? Just kidding. That would be too obvious. (laughs) Yeah, it'd be too on the nose. (laughs) Well, that is not our topic for the day, um, but we'll get to that momentarily. If you're listening, you've heard us talk about it before, be sure to hop on over to Patreon. We just finished another episode of Bottle Talk, which is our new Patreon-only podcast where we dive deep into anything and everything about wine, from the varietal to wines made from things other Um, than grapes. Yeah. We had an episode on how to drink wine, how to, like, all of the... If you want to learn more about wine, check out Patreon and check out Bottle Talk. But if you're really not that interested in the wine, that's okay, because one of the biggest parts of our Patreon are our murder mini-episodes. We're getting close to having 40 additional episodes of content that you can only get over there on Patreon. So hop over. We have a few different tiers. There are other things that come with them, such as directing your own episode. We've got some exclusive Blood and Wine stickers, which I love stickers, so I'm all about that. Same. We also will write you a handwritten note. We'll give you a shout out on social, a shout out on our episode. So just go go check it out. We've also got some funny videos and whatnot that we've also produced as well. So Patreon is where a lot of the action's happening. And if you are all caught up on these episodes, just know you've got about 40 more that you could be listening to right now. Very true. And also make sure to subscribe to us on whatever your podcast listening platform of choice is. If you have the option to subscribe, just hit that subscribe button and 
It will notify you whenever we release a new episode every Tuesday. Yes. So I kind of already talked about my current news was just like the tons of TV and movies I've been watching. Maybe I should go outside, except I'm not. It's way too hot. Yeah, it's 105 degrees. No, I'm not going outside either. (laughs) But that's okay, because I can jump right into the topic. Let's do it. So, as y'all might remember from last week's episode, this was a tie. So, our topic was one that Brittany and I were discussing together. And honestly, as I'm sure y'all realize we are apt to do sometimes... We got on a tangent and got completely distracted. Not us. Yeah, (laughs) it never happens. But yes, we did. And we got on the topic of how much we want to be on a beach right now. Like, how much a vacation sounds nice, a couple days in paradise. Well, and honestly, if we're going to be in 105 degree heat, shouldn't we be on the beach at least... I want a mojito in my hand at all times, and I on the beach or not, but preferably on the beach. So we kind of ran with that, and we're like, okay, you know, what if we did something along the lines of, you know, we've done vacation murders, and we've touched on the paradise, but we've never really gone into, like, the open ocean for murders. And then I went on a tangent about a, um, it might have been an episode of I Survived, it might have been a Discovery Channel documentary, it may have been both, honestly, about this, like, group of friends that was on a yacht that sank, and they were in a rubber Zodiac dinghy, the woman always called it a Zodiac dinghy, I assume that's a brand, <laughs> and there was, like, five of them, because people started getting eaten by sharks in the open water, and then... Like, one of them died because she had, like, cut her leg and it got infected. And there was, like, death water in the zingy. And two of them, like, drank seawater and then went crazy and then swam out and then were eaten by sharks. And so this woman is, like, alone in the dinghy by herself while her friends are dead. And then she gets rescued. Not that that's true crime, but we wanted to kind of play on that. So the topic for this episode is Murdered at Sea. Yes, and obviously, you know, we talked about the Titanic as well, and how there gotta be some people that were murdered on the Titanic. Like, come on, that night, it totally happened. Oh, yeah, people being like, I don't know, sorry kid, stab, I'm getting on the lifeboat. Yeah, I don't put that past people at all. No. So, okay, I'm very much, I didn't do the Titanic, sorry you guys, but yeah. I did pick a case that it shocked me, and you'll you'll see what I'm saying, but before we hop into our cases, let's open our bottles of wine. Yes. I picked one that we've been talking about for a while and have yet to actually do, so I am doing the Skeleton Gruner Veltliner, and oh. we haven't talked about the skeleton specifically, but we have brought up the Gruner Veltliner like, I think three times before. So mm-hmm. I found this bottle at Total Wine, and it's, like, the coolest label I've seen oh, in a while. Oh, skeleton dude hanging out. Yeah, it's, like, this crowd of people, and it's all green, and then there's just, like, a skeleton that's there. There's, like, you know, a couple kissing. They're all, like, you know, really cool, young, hip people, and then there's, like, a, a skeleton. You know what? Good on them. No one is judging the skeleton. Just... Be you. There's actually one guy having a conversation with the skeleton. They're just chatting it up. Probably has some interesting things to say, like, how did you die? 
<laughs> that would be one of my first questions, actually. The sources I used to look up some information about the skeleton wine was skeletonwine.com and winemag.com. So Skeleton is a collection of wines that showcase some of the most popular varietals in countries all around the world with this really like intriguing, fun package like we were talking about and a price that is not intimidating at all. They're $10. So oh, that's not bad. Skeleton was made by the Adolf and Heinrich Fuchs winery. Skeleton currently has two different wines, one of them being the white. This is the Gruner Veltliner, which I'm trying today. It's from Austria. And their red is a Malbec from Argentina. Both of them have these like striking um, two-tone labels. And the name, the bottle on the palate, like it's very unique. This particular wine is from Bergenland, Austria. It's fresh, fruity, and very food-friendly. Austria's favorite white wine varietal is the Gruner Veltliner, so it's why Skeleton picked it as their wine they were going to do, because like I said, they pick the most popular varietals from different countries around the world. There's a mineral undercurrent, and it's a full, expansive finish. So I'm really looking forward to this. And not only is it only $10, it's actually a liter. So I'm probably not going to finish this bottle, otherwise... I mean, I go second in this one, so I definitely can't finish this bottle, but true. let's just say definitely a great bang for your buck. Nice. And it's a screw top. Oh, well, that's not fair. So I'm going to pour my glass while you tell me about your wine. So the wine that I'm going to be drinking today is the 2018 Strata Blue Sauvignon Blanc from California, because again, I really wanted to live up this like whole vacation vibe. And to me, a Sauvignon Blanc is the perfect vacation wine. Also, it's just one of my favorites. But I will say my favorites are New Zealand ones. So I'm interested to see this California one because it's super highly rated. And I've heard it's amazing. So with this wine, the bright citrus and ripe tropical fruit flavors come from the warm days growing on the California coast, but the freshness and the acidity remain there because of the cooling effects of the nighttime Pacific winds. So because it has both like the warm and cool, it kind of has all of these complex flavors. And the taste of the wine is tropical flavors through and through. And it has a strong minerality. So you'll get notes of grapefruit, citrus, lime zest, gooseberry layered with melon and herb. It has a very bright acidity, fresh and vibrant on the finish with, again, the minerality. And it's also one that evolves as it warms in your glass. So the first taste you have when it's crisp cool is not going to be the same taste you're getting when you're finishing your glass and it's warmed up just a bit, which is something I'm really excited to see those different flavors. I've honestly never heard that about a white wine, about how its flavor evolves as it warms up. That's interesting. Yeah. And this wine pairs really well with salad, roasted artichokes, grilled zucchini. So think of different, like... Fun vacation foods, kebabs, things like that you might have at like a summer cookout or barbecue. I mean, that's what I think of when I think this wine. So yeah. I 
uh, am actually corked, so I guess my wine is corked. I'm not. <laughs> uh, someone gonna remove your cork? Is you that like... is that how I find the person I'm gonna marry? I don't know. Whoever pops your cork. Nice. Ooh. Fun fact for those of y'all that don't know, uh, you don't need to aerate or decant white wines. No, Doesn't you change don't. the flavor at all. It does but, not. Ooh. It smells mine smells very crisp. I definitely get like passion fruit and green apple. I'm definitely getting green apple out of mine as well. It's Ooh, very it smells good. Citrusy, green apple, and minerals. And then Same. I'm, I'm also tasting citrusy, green apple, and mineral. I also am getting a hint of something that I smell when I smell Chardonnay, but I'm not able to pinpoint exactly what that is. It's not buttery or anything like that, but... Well, I say cheers, let's taste. All right, cheers. This is acidic, for sure. I would call this very crisp. It's crisp along the lines of a Pinot Grigio type crisp, but it has more minerality intertwined within. If you look, it is a light golden color. I would definitely call this golden, almost like straw mm-hmm. hay. It's not yellow. It's a good wine. It's not my my cup of tea, my cup of my glass of wine. It's not what I would normally pick, but if you're someone who mm-hmm. likes white wines, I would absolutely give this one a try. It's very citrusy, green apple and that minerality. It's got nice I would say the minerals are the undercurrent. I could see that, but I'd give it a try. For $10, this is a fantastic wine. Great one to try, Austria. I can see why this is one of their favorite grapes. So this wine is, I mean, it's not my favorite Sauvignon Blanc. It has a very short finish. Like, it, you're almost done tasting before you swallow. Oh, kind of short that's really quick. And it's good. I The flavors are nice. What I like most in a Sauvignon Blanc are the key lime and the grassiness, which is what I like about New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs. And so that's why I like them so much. Um, and so definitely wasn't expecting that out of this one. It's good. It, you know, has some basic like tropical fruit flavors. I do get a little bit of that gravelly minerality. Uh, but again, the very short finish and it almost gives a residual like yeasty flavor on the tongue um, I, like after you've swallowed i know what you mean and that is not one of i don't really like it when wines do that when i taste me bread me neither and it, it almost reminds me of like a little bit of a beery aftertaste like yes. that kind of and it, you know it's something that i notice in certain white wines and it's it's just a flavor i'm not a big fan of so overall you know this is a wine I'm definitely going to enjoy and drink, but probably not buy again. It's it's a great one. It's just not really my flavor palette. I think you would like the one I'm drinking, the Skeleton, more than I do. But it's not. It's also not one that's normal to our favorite flavor profiles. But at least now I can finally say I've had a Grutner Weltliner, which we've talked about forever. And again, I get why people like it. It's a good one. Just not my kind of good one. Yeah. And well, and this is one that, um, you know, again, we've talked about how if, you know, just because a wine is super highly reviewed does not mean you are going to enjoy it personally. Because this one has a ton of really high reviews. It's a very well-loved wine and a very well-rated wine. Uh, but it just doesn't have the things I look for, personally, in a Sauvignon Blanc. 
All right. Well, we've got our wine. Now it's time for our crime. So the case that I'm going to be doing today is the case of the murders aboard the Challenger. And not the space shuttle, the Challenger. That was not murders. That was a tragic accident. And I didn't I didn't take vacation that seriously as vacation off of Earth. Uh, it was a yacht called the Challenger. So the sources that I used were the Baltimore Sun, an article titled Murder in Paradise by William Thompson, the Los Angeles Times, an article called Slaughter in Paradise by Kenneth Freed. So Yours some, happened in paradise, apparently. You know? Uh, the Independent, and a actually the court case, The Queen v. Melanson Harris and Marvin Joseph. So, fun fact that I literally just learned, in the U.S., courts may be like the United States v. someone, or the state of Texas v. person. I guess in the UK or in Commonwealth countries, it's the Queen V. And I just picture her as a defendant, like sitting in court, testifying and shit. So, she's like, listen, this is what happened. I will tell you. Listen. She's like, so, we were like having this crazy patty, doing like six lines of coke, add the strobes going. I mean, Twami I'm pretty fell sure she has bar. an English accent. I mean, but have you ever heard her talk? You don't know. Fair. She could have a New Jersey accent? I don't know what I was going for I don't there, know what but, you're doing either. But no. So, court case records, they were very useful. This all takes place on the Caribbean island of Antigua. And on this island, appearances and images are really important. Because, like, 70% of the island's economy comes from tourism. So, things need to look nice peaceful and perfect you know like white sand beaches the harbors filled with like some of the world's most expensive yachts like that the image of paradise is important to uphold in antigua so when these murders happened it was a big fucking deal like not only is it a big deal because it's murders but also the islands aren't huge Uh, i think the island of antigua has like seventy thousand people so murder is not something that happens all that often. It's right. also known as like one of the safest places in the Caribbean. So the island and all of it was, I mean, it was really affected by these murders in 1994. I can see that with it being so small and mostly tourists and like a destination. Something like this happens and that's huge. Oh yeah. I mean, just think about um, all of the... Uh, deaths that have been happening this year in the Dominican Republic and how, you know, those aren't even murders. And yet so many people are canceling plans and trying to stay away. And, you know, it's very severely affected the economy there. So, you know, this happening on a small island, because Antigua is one of the those islands in the Caribbean that's like real small. Yeah. So this happening there where 70% of the economy is tourism that's devastating. So Bill and Kathy Clever. I've also seen it um, written as Cleaver in a couple articles. The court case wrote their last names as Clever. Some of the news articles refer to them as Cleaver. So I'm pretty sure their last name is Clever. I would not imagine the court documents misspelling it, but I did want to throw that out there. But they are a couple who live in California and 
and they work for this British multimillionaire, Peter Ogden. And the two of them are working on managing and building these estates on an island in the English Channel that Ogden owns, and they're doing a really good job. And like, I mean, a really good job. So good that Ogden gave them his yacht to use for their vacation. That's like, doing a pretty so good job. Impressed that he's like, here is my yacht, go for it, ride the Challenger. Which again, this is also not that long after um, the Space Shuttle Challenger explosion, so I feel like the name is a little foreboding. Just going to throw that bit. out there. It's like how no one else is going to name another ship the Titanic. I think they have, actually, but it's just like, that's not good luck. No. Like, you I just mean, don't I, Well, do I that. say that, but um, they do have that, like... I don't know if they do it on the Queen Mary 2, or if it's a whole new ship that they've named, like, the Titanic 2, that does the original route that you can get tickets for nowadays. Um, but I want to do that. Regardless. Um, also, side note, yacht. Maybe this is just because I'm a poor person who's never been on a yacht. That is a hard-ass word to spell. I don't know where the GHs go, where the T, there's like a C thrown in there, there might be a U. I don't know. There's not it's a much GH. longer. Like I said, it's a hard <laughs> word to spell. It's Y-A-C-H-T. Okay, well, Miss Fancy knows how to spell it. I'll just defer all my yacht-related questions to her from now on. I can't answer any of them, except for the spelling, which is not something I can normally answer. And also, that's the American spelling, so you could be looking at the British spelling, which could have a G-H into it. I don't know. I feel like it should just be spelled Y-O-T. Yacht. <laughs> like, jot. You want to or... ride my yacht or cot? Or dot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like most of the other things. Anyways, um, so he's like, y'all are killing it. Y'all are slaying at your jobs. Here's the yacht. And they're like, cool. We love yachts. And so Wait, they are... On <laughs> do you get, like, yacht and yogurt mixed up? Because yogurt has a GH. <laughs> and a U. <laughs> uh, no, yogurt. <laughs> Fancy people yogurt. That's a business idea, y'all. Yogurt. We're gonna start yogurt. Oh my god! And like one in a million of them, like the foil lid, you win a free trip on a yacht or something. I'm just saying, business shit. Okay, but there's not a foil lid because this is a glass jar with a an aluminum lid. Okay, so like recycled baby food. Because it's yogurt. Yeah, no, I know. Anyways, they're killing it. He gave them their yacht. They're on vacation. And on the yacht with them in Antigua is Ian Trevor Critty Cridlin, uh, who's the skipper, who is 33, and uh, 22-year-old Thomas Williams, who's the deckhand, who doesn't get a nickname. No nickname for him. Critty. Also, um, the company, I've never heard of it, I'm not English though, but the company that Ogden owns is Computer Center, which in the 90s was like... Apparently one of the biggest, like, computer distribution and sales places. So I imagine for Americans, think, like, the CEO of Radio Shack kind of thing. Gotcha. Um, so the technical name of the yacht is the Computer Center Challenger. 
which is a gross name, so I'm going to call it the Challenger. Um, but according to police and residents, the the Challenger left the Nelson's Dockyard, which is a national park that's used as a marina by some of the largest and fanciest boats in the world. And it left on January 29th of 1994, and they were to be gone for six days. They were going to sail around the Caribbean. Uh, they were going to visit some of the other islands, like Barbuda. Yeah, that was their plan. That's their vacation plan. It sounds really fun, but I know it's not going to be really fun. Yeah, no. Not with what the title of the case is. So, mysteriously, at least mysteriously in the minds of some of the regulars, um, some of the guests failed to make the sailing. So there were supposed to be other people on the boat, but they didn't make it. They, like, missed the boat? Yeah. Which is weird, because it's a yacht. It's not like a scheduled ferry or cruise. But, so, you know, interesting to note. Five days later, a sailor who was passing noticed the Challenger was sitting anchor in about 20 feet of water in Low Bay. And this is one of the, um, like, unoccupied beaches on the island of Barbuda, which is an island, like, 15 miles from Antigua. So it's, like anchored on this abandoned beach but the abandoned beach is also near a resort that's like $1,700 a night resort like fancy as fuck but really it's weird because a boat this big as, as large as the challenger should be in deeper water like 20 feet and it's probably scraping the bottom so that's weird and this passing sailor also noted that the yacht's uh hatch was open, which means that someone had climbed aboard the yacht from the outside. Uh-oh, like while they were parked in the shallow water? Well, while they were parked in the shallow water, or like before, and it drifted, but the hatch was open, someone had been aboard, and that's just, it's weird. That's, that's creepy. not something that you would just like, leave open. Right. So he used this open hatch to climb aboard and see just like, what the fuck's going on? What he found inside was horrifying. Four badly decomposed bodies. The men were in their undershorts, and Kathy, also known as Kathleen, was in her nightshirt, and they were all lying on the floor of the main cabin. Oh my god, okay, I did not anticipate... I didn't, I didn't realize that much time had passed where their bodies would be decomposing. Well, I mean, it's only been five days since they left, but this is... Like, hot, humid, tropical heat. That is a good point. This is a horrific thing to stumble upon. Yeah, and he's just like, you know, he has his own boat, and he's like, hmm, wonder what's going on. I'm going to see if everyone's okay. For dead, decomposed people. Their hands had been tied behind their backs, their mouths were gagged with duct tape, and they were just, like, lying there kind of around this table in, like, the main sitting area, all dead. And... At first, there there just doesn't seem to be any kind of motive for these murders. So, sketchy and often contradictory news about the killings raced around the world. And this was fed mainly by the British tabloid press that happened to be on the island to cover, like, the international cricket matches that were happening. So the press, the tabloid press was already there. Oh, so wow. So news spread very quickly. And on the island... 
friends of the murdered crew who lived there because the clevers were visiting but the crew lived there um so friends of them were like drinking and crying a few of them put on some black armbands to like you know as a remembrance symbol somebody chipped in a few dollars to start a reward fund to find like whoever did this whoever the killers were yeah and with the help of an anonymous yacht owner, the fund quickly grew to $150,000. That's a lot to raise really quickly. Yeah. So while it's, you know, in the British news and the victims' loved ones is something that's very much being talked about, it's very much being searched into and why, in the close circles of, like, the Antiguan government and the influential people, it is being treated as something to bury something to just like give it time and it's gonna go away well yeah like uh, because of all the tourism that they have this is not something especially if it's spreading around the world they want to bury that as fast as possible absolutely which i get but it's also not how you should approach an investigation because you're not just trying to find someone to accuse you want to find who actually did it yeah yeah, I, I feel like that mistakes can happen when you're trying to bury something quickly. Well, and like, even the Prime Minister, uh, when asked if he had anything to say about the killing, said, Not a thing. And let the police handle it. And I understand it coming from a place of not wanting it to define this area, but it comes across as so callous and just like heartless. It does. It's like, he doesn't care. Local police did handle the matter by, like, turning it over to Scotland Yard investigators who were on the island coincidentally investigating another murder case of a customs official uh, from the year before who'd been killed by some thieves in his house. Oh, God. So the Antigua police commissioner was not happy with how the British press was, like, portraying this case in the island and issued an official directive calling the residents of Antigua and Barbuda not to jeopardize the tourist industry by sensationalizing this incident. Again, comes off as just callous and uncaring. It does. And I, I mean, I get it. It's 70% of the island's economy. Like, that could send... If something spirals and people stop going, that could send a lot of people out of jobs into poverty, into homelessness. Like, you know, a, there's a lot at stake, but... A little compassion, I think, would go a long way. Another thing about it is a lot of locals were really confused by the police commissioner saying this because they didn't really know about the crime. The government managed, like, TV and radio stations didn't really pay any attention to the murders, and two weeks after the bodies were found, only one of the island's newspapers had published anything about it. Wait, so how did it spread so quickly then? The British newspapers were talking about it. Oh, because they no were covering one on the cricket. actual island. Yeah. So basically, had those reporters not been there for like their cricket match, this would have been super underreported and wow, not probably not really gone anywhere. Well, and I will say, not that it's truly a dream. That's not the best choice of word, but this is almost like a reporter's dream to be covering one case and have something else happen that's like even bigger and to like break that case to the country and the world. I mean, yeah, it like just imagine the traffic reporter 
who was, you know, reporting five o'clock traffic, and oh my god, suddenly there's a white Bronco. That's OJ. Oh, like, yeah. So, when Scotland Yard took over, they had to work through a ton of rumors that have built up because of, like, the mystery and the secrecy of the case. So, original reports said that the victims had been stabbed repeatedly with a marlin spike, a knife, and an ice pick. Oh my god. And that's, like, again, some of the sources, because the two news articles that um, I use were from January of 1994, or February of 1994, like, basically right after this happened and right. started, like, becoming known. So there's even some misinformation in them, just because of how secretive and underreported it's being on the island. Yeah. Getting accurate, clear information out is really hard for people that aren't there. So they instead revealed that everyone... Um, that all of the evidence showed that the four victims had been shot. So the police believe that, like, after sundown, at least two people boarded the yacht as it laid anchor about a mile off of the beach, so in deeper water. Yeah. And whoever boarded this vessel forced all the passengers to, like, get together and sit around this small table and then bound their hands and gagged their mouths. The group had apparently been, like, getting ready for bed, which is how they kind of know time-ish-wise, because the men were dressed in their underwear, and then Kathleen Clever was in her nightshirt. Right. So, like, they were bedtime for them. Um, And just because of how everyone died, you know, the evidence, it looks like they were killed one at a time, as if the killers were, like, seeking information. And because also all four of them looked like they had been tortured. Wow, that is awful. That is, think, I mean, don't think about it. The, the image of being there with a group of your friends and whoever was killed last had to see all of their friends die while being tortured themselves and seeing their friends be tortured. Like, that's excruciating. Yeah. So... Also, just how gruesome the murders were. I mean, blood covered basically everything in the cabin. I mean... This is this a is, nightmare. Yeah. It's not not that, like, seeing anyone die, especially a friend or a spouse, would be, like, okay in any way. But the brutality and gruesomeness of these murders, I feel like, makes it so much worse. Yeah. You're not seeing someone, like, I don't know, die peacefully, I guess. No. It's brutal. And the the search for this motive, it became very frustrating because police noted that it didn't look like anything had really been stolen from the yacht or the victims. I mean, there's still jewelry. There's still a TV and expensive equipment. Like, it's all still there on the yacht. It's just these dead victims. There's also an absence of any kind of drug, which did lead to speculation that... Maybe the group of them had come across, like, a drug drop or a transaction happening on another vessel and, like, seen something they shouldn't have seen and been killed. Yeah. But to me, that's very, like, that's a stretch, honestly. Um, And also something that's been unexplained with all this is the dinghy of the yacht 
was found drifting two miles away from where the boat was anchored. So as if someone took it and then got on something else? Or that they just let it loose? Yeah, maybe. You know, maybe they took it to shore and just hopped off and it floated away because it's dingy. I don't know. But I'm assuming probably not something that straightforward and simple. So, flash forward a few years. On February 28th of 1996, Marvin Joseph and Melanson Harris were found guilty by a jury of their peers for the murder of the four people aboard the Challenger yacht in Barbuda. The murders were committed during the course of like a very planned and elaborately executed robbery that oh. really had would, had more similarities to like piracy on the high seas so, than anything else. So they were almost like modern day pirates in a yeah. in a way. Yeah. The two of them and a third man, Samuel, um had met several days before this and they planned to board and plunder one of the yachts that were in the area. You know, it's an area famous for all these really expensive, really nice yachts and they're like we're going to get on one, we're going to rob it. And, you know, before this, they planned and executed a house robbery where they stole a shotgun that contained five bullets in it. And they decided they would, quote-unquote, borrow, steal a speedboat and use it to get to this area in Low Bay where they were going to, like, board the boat, steal. So on this night, they paddled up to the yacht, the Challenger, and they climbed over the sides. Joseph was holding the loaded shotgun, and again, they were like, we're going to find all the people on it, we're going to tie them up, we're going to rob them. So they just picked it randomly? Yeah. Because they happened to be parked in the spot where they drove the stolen speedboat over to. Yeah. So they didn't even know for sure that these people had things to steal, except for the fact that they I were mean, on a yacht. A, it's a big-ass yacht. No, I get that. But I get for that. Real. I mean, But it wasn't could, their yacht. No, I mean, they could... First off, they were, like, it was a thing, like a gift from their boss to be on the yacht. Yeah. Second off, these people could have been, like, contest winners or something. I mean, I kind of get it. It'd be like robbing someone's Lamborghini or Bugatti, like... Yeah, maybe they, like, don't have anything in there, but probably there's, like, gold bars under the backseat. But probably not. In their mind. I know, but literally someone's yacht or their really expensive car is not where they're keeping all their cash or their diamonds. I don't know. I'm just saying. It's it's stupid. It's... Honestly, this reminds me of, like, a movie plot with, like, two stupid criminals that... Three. With, like, three stupid criminals that think they're going to be able to go rob this yacht, like, kill the people, rob the yacht, get all the riches, and then they will be the ones that are, like, chilling on the yacht. I mean, honestly... Yeah, and it's like, that's not how this works. No. There are just so many holes you can poke in a plan like that that it's just so dumb. Oh, yeah. So, it's... I mean, it's... They're dumb. It's it, To me, it's like an almost, like, grade school kid plot to you know like you said let's let's rob the yacht and then we'll be the yacht people and it's like that's not how anything works no so when they boarded this yacht um joseph was armed with a gun and they encountered the captain and joseph like sticks the gun at him and you know they command him they're like hey 
wake up everyone else and get them to come out of their cabin into like the living room. And so they do. And at gunpoint, all of them are tied up with rope and they have their mouths duct taped. One of the victims was able to untie the rope and get away, but immediately he was recaptured and retied. Samuel, at the direction of Joseph, went down to the cabin and searched and found, you know, a number of items, including some money, a camera, and a bird gun. And this entire thing, them being tied up, him searching for stuff to steal, took between like 30 minutes and an hour that they're all sitting here tied up, being held at gunpoint. So all of the victims, they're tied up, gagged with duct tape, and they're seated around this table. And after Samuel comes back and like completes search, he's like, this is all the stuff, which obviously, because... Robbery wasn't even on the police's mind because it looked like there was so much shit that wasn't stolen. Obviously, they didn't do a very good job at getting all the stuff. I know. At the beginning, when you said it, you know, they saw the scene, the person who discovered it, and it didn't seem like anything was motive, clearly they were shitty robbers. Yeah. I'm like, uh... Because there's, like, jewelry and shit. You know, a TV, sure, maybe that's, like, really heavy or whatever. I mean, it is 1994. TVs were disgusting. (laughs) They were gigantic square boxes. But, like, a shit ton of jewelry and stuff? Come on. Again, stupid criminals. Yeah, I mean, there's no part of me that thinks they were intelligent enough to be like, oh, let's not grab the jewelry that could be traced to these victims. Like, I'm like, no, 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 y'all weren't forward thinking. There's just a drawer that y'all didn't open or something. Yeah. So after the search is complete, the items were like taken, put into a bag. And Samuel's like, all right, guys, we got the stuff. Let's go. Um, But the other two didn't listen to him. And Joseph then decided to shoot Thomas Williams, the 22-year-old deckhand. Harris gave three statements to police, and he stated in one of those that Joseph first shot Thomas, and that he, Harris, then shot the other three after Joseph gave him the gun and told him to shoot the rest of them. In a later statement, Harris would go on to say that he actually shot Thomas Williams, and then Joseph, who didn't think he was dead grabbed the gun, and shot him in the back of the head to ensure he was dead. Harris then said that he killed the others because, you know, one of them was dead, so why is there any reason to keep the others alive? The medical evidence showed that Thomas was shot in the head, and there were also bullets in his back, which suggested that he was shot from above, kind of confirming that he was seated at the table. Yeah. Kathleen Clever was shot next. Um, she was shot trying to hide behind the table. Oh. And she's she's tied up and yeah. gagged with t- duct tape. And she's still trying to hide. But there was medical evidence that even though she was bound and gagged, she was moving when she was shot. So she was... She may have even been close to escaping. I mean, I can't imagine there's a lot of movement you can do tied up. Norman Clever, her husband, uh, who was sitting next to her, was shot next, and he was shot point-blank in the chest. And then finally, the captain, Ian Trevor Cridland, was shot also in the chest at point-blank range. But 
medical evidence for him showed that there was blood in his lungs and he probably lived for about 15 minutes after he was shot. So all That's three of awful. them, you know, his friend and these two people that he was that you know, he was the captain of the boat for and he was also friends with them. They're just dead around him. The killers have left and he's lying there basically drowning in his own blood for 15 minutes alone. I can't imagine something worse than that type of death. Like, that is... It's one of the things, and I'm going to go morbid here for a second, that we know we all die, but we all want a death that's quick and that we have no memory of. I mean, and when I say memory of, you you get what I mean. Where it's not... No, I mean, like, It's not something that we have to feel along the way, and unfortunately that's not the case with a lot of deaths, but it's, you know... We would all prefer yeah, I it. would, I would rather die in, like, a car accident, like, driving through an intersection, and I'm hit and killed instantly, and I didn't even see another car kind of thing, than even something that, like, you know, a long-term battle with, like, cancer, or, like, exactly. something that seems, peaceful is not the right word, but something that's not as, like, traumatic and sudden. Shit, I'll choose sudden every damn day. Well, that's one of the things when... I mean, even on just TV or when you see the news or when you yourself experience the loss of a loved one, a lot of the times they will tell you, you know, he or she died very quickly when, without pain. Because that's yeah, important they didn't to us. feel anything. Yeah, that's important absolutely. to us to know that our loved ones didn't have to suffer. And so I hate that the captain did and that we know by, you know, the medical examiner that he did suffer. And that's just, that is so horrific. Yeah. That adds another layer to just the horror of this robbery by three fucking idiots. Yeah. So Harris's fingerprint, the the reason they were caught, Harris's fingerprint was found on the tape that was bounding Kathleen Clever's mouth. And when they interrogated him about it, he gave statements um, accepting a large part in the role that he played in the murders. And he also took police to where the bag of stolen items was. And the bag that all the stuff was in was labeled with the words, Captain William Clever. So Bill, who was being loaned this boat as like this gift, this treat, you know, he's like, oh, fuck, I'm a captain now kind of thing. And it was just so, to me, that is just another thing that's like, God, it's just so full of joy. They're they're here on vacation. They're on the boss's boat because they've worked their asses off. They're killing it. And he's like, I'm the fucking captain. I'm on a boat. And so he labeled his bag Captain William Clever. So Samuel, um, who he was the one of the three that he stole the stuff and was like, guys, let's go before anyone started shooting. Because he was not directly involved in the murders and because he also gave some very crucial evidence to the police because he was like oh fuck no i'm not a part of this received 15 years in prison and harris and joseph originally did receive uh the death penalty and while originally it was thought that the sentence would be carried out very quickly uh by hanging it was delayed a number of times and Because of how long it was delayed, the laws at Antigua at the time basically made it to where if you're on death row for too long, 
it can be seen as cruel and unusual punishment. And okay, I get I, that. I get it. I, I see where they're coming from. But in this case, because that happened, um, they were they did receive a stay in execution from the government. And in 2016, they were both resentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 45 years. So basically, life, life kind of thing. Yeah, I I respect that change. I get it. Yeah, honestly, that I get. Because one of the things that, and this is hearkening back to college and criminology class, but one of the things that we learned about is, you know, for punishment to be effective, one of the things is it has to be dealt out quickly. Like, it has to be something that is quickly related to the the crime and the sentencing. And in a weird way, what, what pops into my mind when I think about this as an image, as an example, is that, like, when your dog has an accident in the house, you know, punishing them for it an hour later, they don't understand, they don't make the connection that that is the issue. But, you know, if it happens right after and you're like, okay, no, we don't do this, this is not okay, take them outside, then they're able to associate that. So for punishment to actually be a deterrent, it has to kind of be swift. And it also needs to be, like, just, and there's another word that basically means equal. So, like, if you do this crime, you get this punishment. Instead, the reality is not that. So, honestly, because of different things like that, the idea of someone being on death row for just this extended period of time, I absolutely, I totally get it. I mean, I don't agree with death row in general, but, you know, in a a case like this, I I think seeing that as cruel and unusual and getting a resentencing of life absolutely makes sense. 100%. I agree with that. I think the death penalty is cruel and unusual in and of itself. And spending Agreed. 15 years of your life knowing that at any moment you could be called to the chamber. But yeah. I'm glad that they're being held behind bars for a life sentence. And what they did, like I said, they were stupid. And what they did was mm-hmm. absolutely horrible for, for no gain. It was horrifying. It was just, like, it was so dumb. No, for, no, yeah. no murder is justified. But theirs is like, literally, like, why the fuck did you do this? Yeah. What did you get out of it besides a life sentence in prison? Nothing. Because, honestly, if they had just, like, not killed them and just, like, stolen shit and worn masks or disguises or something and then just peaced out, they probably never would have been caught. Yeah, especially with the fact that it was, like, they were on vacation, this was an island, it wasn't where they were from, it's probably not where the pirate guys were from. I'm gonna call them pirates. But, yeah, it literally, this is why... Real pirates weren't really caught. This is exactly yeah. why. Well, I guess they did... So, amend that. His fingerprint was on the tape on Kathleen's mouth. True. But honestly, if they had just been robbed, I don't I don't know if she would have, like, been known to, like, preserve the tape, or if she would have taken it off and thrown it away, and then go to the police. I don't right. know. So, that is the case of the murders aboard the Challenger. Well, I'm gonna need some more wine before I get into my case. That was... Wow. Fair. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to see if I can just fill the whole You're like thing up. you're like glugging yours in. It worked. One glass of wine. That's like This is a Sandra Lee pour. That is yeah, like 
two shots of vodka. Glug, 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 Yeah, I was making drinks this weekend, and we had, like, those big silver Yetis, and it was this cucumber lime vodka and Topo Chico that we were mixing. So, like, a really nice... That sounds amazing. Oh, it's so good. So, we have these big... Is it just... Sorry, I'm I'm stuck on the cucumber lime vodka. Is it, like, just Svetka... Or so, what, what brand? Where do I buy this? Svetka has one that's phenomenal. Smirnoff also has one, but I recommend Svetka. Best summer drink ever. I'm telling you, it yes. is. You're allowed to be as excited as you are because my best friend introduced me to this drink and I'm like all about it. It just sounds so refreshing. Oh my god, think of that with like a slice of fresh ruby red grapefruit in the glass. Ooh, I like where your head is going. That sounds good. Mm-hmm. Ooh, or without that, like, fuck the grapefruit. Um, don't fuck the grapefruit, but, like, <laughs> I mean, do, if that's what you're into, do whatever you want. It's your house. But cucumber lime vodka, the Topo Chico, or any kind of sparkling water, because I don't have any kind of love for Topo. I don't care. It's sparkling water. But if you, like, muddle some mint in that, come on. It's kind of like a mojito-ish. It's like a sugar-free, calorie Locale mojito with vodka instead of rum. So it's not a mojito. It's not. But, okay. So I have these two big Yetis. And I'm like, well, how much vodka do I put in a 20-ounce Yeti? I don't know. Like, I'm trying to make a proper mixed drink. And they were like, I don't know. Just pour for five seconds. So I'm like, and I'm like, (laughs) and it's just, that's a long time to pour, I'm just saying. (laughs) Especially without, like, a bartender's spout. Because I'm imagining it's just, like, open bottle. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was. So I'm pretty sure they were, like, half vodka, half Topo Chico. So, yeah, we were feeling pretty good. But honestly, if you can make a drink that's, like, liquor and something as light of a flavor slash flavorless as soda water and it's still drinkable it's a good drink Uh, i mean i could taste the cucumber and the lime but not the vodka so that's why i like um deep eddie their flavored vodkas and soda so like a deep eddie lemon and soda or a deep eddie grapefruit and soda she can make it half and half and you're like "Mm, lemonade you know what we haven't done in a while is like a an episode where we're not actually drinking wine, where we do a mixed drink. We should do another cocktail episode. Was the last one we did last Halloween, like a year ago? Well, then we did the one where it was like serial killers in the Ukraine. We did vodka. Oh, yeah. And made that fun cocktail. We had our vodka mixed drinks. Okay. I don't remember what the cocktail was. Delicious. Obviously, that means it was good. Yeah. So. I think we have the recipe Um, on Patreon, maybe. <laughs> um, we can find it, I'm sure. Honestly, we can listen to the episode. But you're right, we need to do another, uh, like a mixed drink episode. I think we should do, you know what? Here's what I'm gonna say. Maybe not the next episode, or maybe the next episode, who knows. But we should do an end of summer bash episode and do a summer cocktail. I love not it. Not that the end of summer in Texas is gonna happen for another, like, until the end of October. But we can pretend that, like, September is when summer ends. I think technically it is. <laughs> oh, yeah, like September 21st. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Well, not in Texas. No, not in Texas. But... Okay, well, I'm going to jump into my case now, because it has similarities to yours, but also a lot of differences. My case is the murder on the Bluebell. The Bluebell oh. not being the ice cream, it's another yacht. 
Okay, so neither of our cases take place in either a space shuttle or an ice cream factory, although those would both be very interesting stories. Ice cream factory murders. Very interesting. It gave me... Please don't make that a future topic. I won't, but it gave me vibes of, like, Dahmer and the fact that he worked at a chocolate factory, which is always one of those, like... Oh, I forgot. I know, it's a horrific thing. Oh, I forgot. Uh, think of all the people that ate chocolate in the 70s. I know, and there's like... In Milwaukee. And, well, in the 80s, and they like had bone chunks. Yeah. Just kidding, they didn't. Oh. <laughs> I I'm just saying, like I, I bet he had like bone dust on his clothes. I mean, yeah, like, honestly, do we think Dahmer was the type of person to wash his hands and then go to work? Probably not. No, no, he probably also didn't wash his hands after using the bathroom. So the sources I used, the first one is an article from Mental Floss, The Sea Waif by Diana Chioppa. The second article is from Salon.com, Bluebell's Last Voyage, A True Crime by Harold Schechter. So in the morning of November 13th, 1961, so I'm taking us back in time a bit, there was a tanker traveling in the Northwest Providence Channel in the Bahamas, and they saw a really small dinghy pulling a life raft. There was a man in the dinghy, and they pulled him on board, and he identified himself as Julian Harvey. He was the captain of a sailboat, the Bluebell, and he said that the little girl that was on the raft was Terry Jo Dupereau, and she was dead. He told the crew that he had been taking the Dupereau family, Arthur and his wife, Jean, their 14-year-old son, Brian, and their daughters, Renee, who was 7, and Terry Jo, who was 11. The family was from Wisconsin, and Julie and Harvey was taking them back to Florida after they'd sailed the Bahamas for a week. On the previous night, Harvey said that there was this sudden gust of really violent wind that struck and hit the main mast on the sailboat so badly that it crashed into the cabin and the hull of the boat, piercing it. So this is a large, oh. like, two-mast sailboat. It's it's a yacht. It's huge. Yeah. And so he's saying this wind came along, knocked down the main mast, and it pierced the boat. I'm suspicious. The main mast ruptured the gas lines in the engine room and the ship burst into flames. Harvey said that the Dupereau family and even his wife, who had accompanied him on the journey, Mary Denis, were caught in the disaster or they they jumped ship as the Bluebell sank. He said he used fire extinguishers and he tried to do all that he could to save the family, but it was to no avail. He jumped into the sea and climbed into the dinghy and he stated that he, he was in the dinghy and he just yelled and yelled the names of everyone until his voice was hoarse. At last, he came upon a little girl floating face down in the water. Her body was being buoyed by the life jacket that she was wearing. He hauled her onto the dinghy, but she was already dead. And he said that the others had vanished into the sea along with the bluebell. After Harvey was back on land, he later told the same story to the Coast Guard. But there was one really big problem to his story. The little girl on the life raft was not Terry Joe. The real Terry Joe was still out on the sea on a very small life raft, slowly but like excruciatingly fading in the heat of the tropical sun. Okay, so first off, who the hell does he have? Second off, 
I already love Terry Joe. She's a fucking survivor. She's what, 11? 11 years old. Jesus. Oh my god. Okay. So, little backstory. What's going on? Who's the Dupereau family? Yeah. Where were they going? And who the fuck is Julian Harvey? The Dupereau family, they planned this trip to the Bahamas as this trial run for Arthur, the dad. He wanted to take a month-long journey around the world. So, you know, like 80 days around the world, you know the movie. He wants to do this in real life. Maybe not necessarily in 80 days because multiple months. But he wants to take a trip around the world and he wants to do a trial run down in the Bahamas. Much smaller scale. Okay. But this was going to be their family trip. So they drove down to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and after realizing uh, how how they get a yacht is kind of difficult, they chartered one from a man named Harold Pegg. The yacht was destined for the Bahamas, and their captain was Julian Harvey and his sixth wife, Mary Denis. That's a lot of wives. It's a lot of wives. The family had a fan fantastic vacation in the bahamas they sailed from island to island they snorkeled they did spear fishing and they enjoyed lots of lovely meals at all of these local island paradise like this was a fantastic family vacation i hear they even had tickets to attend fire festival no they didn't they didn't they they were going to but they decided to opt out Smart decision. This was the first fire festival back in 1961. Um, you know, it was like the pre-Woodstock festival, mm, but you know right. they didn't want to go. On the night of November 12th, Terry Joe went to bed while the rest of the family stayed in the cockpit. At about 11 p.m., Terry woke up suddenly when she heard her brother Brian screaming, and she heard like sounds like there were like foots on the ground, like someone was running, something was happening. Terry Jo was, like, stricken with a ton of fear, so she stayed in bed until she worked up enough courage to go find out what was going on. She opened the door and saw her mother and brother lying dead in a pool of their own blood. <gasps> she climbed the deck, and she saw Harvey walking towards her and asked him what happened, but he shoved her back down the stairs. So... Even though her time outside of her room was very small... She noticed that the ship seemed to be in fine shape. The The weather was clear. And this is something she would recall later. So there's not like this big yeah. swell that's that's coming. Yeah. Um, and it was later in life during an interview under sodium amytal. Um, it helped her remember seeing blood and a knife on the deck. So she has very spotty memories of what she saw in that brief flash. Yeah. Well, also, one thing that I'm still confused about is, you know, his his story of this wind, this sudden wind hitting the hitting the mast and it crashing down. Sailboats are designed to like not do that. And I would imagine if a if a sudden wind hit that hard to even come close to tearing the mass down. Granted, I'm not a sail expert by any means or anything. I mean, I technically did sail a boat through the Florida Keys once for like a hundred miles, but it's like whatever. But I just imagine that what? if that kind of Boy, yeah, Boy Scouts, Boy Scouts. <laughs> um, but I imagine if that strong of a wind hit the boat, 
the mast wouldn't break and crash down and, you know, into the cabin, the boat would flip over. Like, it, mm. it would capsize. Good point. The wind would push the, the sail over and the boat would go with it. Well, he's, I mean, he is a sailor, so I imagine if he's going to give some kind of, I mean, what sounds like make up a story that he would have more knowledge to what winds could do to ships or stuff. But I don't know. That, to me, I'm I'm suspicious. Well, you have every right to be. So the next thing that happened to Terry Jo, she's down in her room and all of a sudden water starts to fill her room. And by the time it got to her mattress, she's realizing that the ship is sinking. So she opens the door and she once again sees Harvey standing in the door frame. And this time he has a rifle, but he turned around and climbed back up the stairs. She, you know, not really having much other choice, climbs the stairs and she sees Harvey preparing the dinghy and a life raft. And she like yells at him. She's like, is the ship sinking? Is the ship sinking? And he said, yeah, it was. But then he realized like this was his means to get away. And the dinghy was floating away. So he jumped into the water and he left Terry on board. And he got on the dinghy. So back on land, after Harvey had been rescued, not everyone believed his story. As we've already poked multiple holes I mean, yeah, I bet people would be suspicious like me. So at this point, no one knows about Terry Joe. People have been told that the girl that was with him on the life raft was Terry Joe. Remember, there is a girl on the life raft. Many people said he seemed way too calm for someone who just lost his wife and the family that he was chartering in this, like, freak nature accident. And some of these people were his own friends. So it's not just random people here in the story. It's his friends. Again, you know, like we've mentioned before, you can't categorize someone else's grief to your own emotions and stuff. Like, you can't say... This person is grieving wrong. That's not how someone should grieve. They should grieve like this. But on the other hand, suspicious. He's suspicious. And the Bluebell's owner, Harold Pegg, he found that Harvey's account of the mass failure really ridiculous, especially because the yacht had been recently inspected and completely cleared. Okay. See? Okay. I'm glad yacht owner agrees with me that that just doesn't... I didn't even think about like, oh, if there'd been termites or some kind of weakening that probably could have done it but i mean like yeah that's weird it is and this was not the first time that suspicion had fallen on harvey so he was a world war ii bomber pilot and he served in the korean war as well but peers in the military stated that he would often ditch some of his missions and claim that there was engine failure like he couldn't go up there was engine failure And so by the time his military career was over, his nerves were completely shot and he had this like facial tick and a stutter that just kept getting worse. There was also the fact that he had multiple wives. And as I mentioned, Mary Denis was his sixth. And this is not to say that just because you happen to have multiple relationships and marriages that that's a red flag, but... When you pair that up with everything else that was going on in his life, it did cause some suspicion. Yeah. He would also have multiple affairs, and he would leave women at the drop of a hat. And so this is why he had been married so many times. There was also an incident that happened on a really rainy night. 
when he was driving his second wife, Joan, and her mother-in-law back from the movies. His car swerved on a bridge and rolled over the side into the water below. The car sank, and Harvey was the only survivor. Oh, shit. Bystanders dove into the water to look for Mrs. Harvey and her mother, and Harvey just kept talking about how he was able to escape from the car, you know, how he was able to open the door and jump out while it was in midair. He made no attempt to save his wife or her mother, and he really didn't even seem very broken up about their deaths. Yeah, that's a little sketch. And when a professional diver went down to retrieve the bodies, he found that all four of the car doors were locked, and the driver's window was rolled down, which suggested a very different scenario from the one that Harvey was telling people. It seemed as what happened is that Harvey went down with everyone in the car, rolled down his window, and he went out and didn't even attempt to save his wife and her mom. Oh, because people saw the car roll and go off the bridge, right? Yeah, and that's why bystanders were trying to help, and they weren't able to. It was down in the water. Yeah. And soon after her death, he cashed in on his wife's life insurance. Of course he did. Also, the Bluebell was not the first ship that had sank under Harvey's watch. There had been two previously. Oh, okay, yeah, that's... That's this bit, because cars crash all the time. Ships don't sink all the time. I mean, ships sink, but, like, it would be like if you had a pilot for, like, I don't know, American Airlines who had, like, four plane crashes under his belt. That shit's suspicious. That, planes don't crash. I mean, they do, obviously, but they don't. No, there is reason for all the suspicion that was around what happened with Harvey and the Bluebell? I feel like at this point, there should have been suspicion way before he met Terry Joe and her family. I know. As the investigation was underway, the holes really started to appear in Harvey's story, such as the way he described the mast causing all this damage. If it had actually fallen, it would not have pierced the boat. It would have just fallen over. Right? Like... <laughs> I mean, it's not... What? Exactly. Even the... Even the... We were talking about the Titanic earlier. Okay. Even the damn metal-ass funnels did not hurt the side of the ship. You know, they fell on people and then they rolled away. Mm -mm. So, there was also the fact that no one at the lighthouse nearby saw a fire at sea that night. Nor did Harvey try to make it over to that island after he found the body of who we thought was Terry Joe. However, it was actually her sister, seven-year-old Renee. Okay, so first off, there is a difference between a seven-year-old and an 11-year-old. I feel like you can look at them and be like, mm, this looks like a second grader, not a sixth grader. But okay, first off, Second off, yeah, lighthouses see everything. That's literally the point of a lighthouse. Exactly. Is to see all the shit going on on the sea. So if there was a fire, they would know. Especially at night. That shit's bright. Well, and the thing is, I think he said that the girl was Terry Joe because he purposely left Terry Joe 
And so he wanted to cover his tracks and be like, oh, that's Terry Joe. And as far as the lighthouse is concerned, I, I agree. Like, this is a huge hole. If this truly was an emergency and he was a captain, he would go to the nearest island. And there was one right he, there. And he didn't go to it. Yeah. Yeah. No. So. He's trash. Another really telling point, which is probably the biggest issue, is that Harvey admitted at no point during the hours of drifting did he think to look for flares that were in the dinghy's emergency kit. A captain in a true emergency would have thought of that. He's also military trained. Bitch knows what flares are. That's why his story is total bullshit. Because he was military trained. He was a captain. These are not things you forget in an emergency. There are so many holes. I feel like even if he's trying to cover up the murder is what it seems like. To think about these things. I know. I know. And it was just real stupid. I mean, not. I don't want to help anyone out, out like planning a murder. But like plan. Logistics. Yeah. Shit. So, as if life was truly a movie in this one instance, as Harvey was wrapping up his testimony with investigators, the captain of the Coast Guard burst into the room and he announced that they had found a survivor. Fuck, yes they did. Terry Joe had been on the open ocean for three and a half days, and she ended up being picked up by a Greek freighter. And she was only hours away from death at this point. She was dehydrated. She was extremely sunburned. And she was mostly unconscious. Holy shit. Surviving three and a half days without water, even if you're, like, not in the burning sun, that is fucking incredible. That's a feat. I mean, like, the fun fact. Here's a fun fact about survival that's easy to remember. Um, The rule of threes. You can survive about three minutes without oxygen, three days without water, three weeks without food. But that's not taking into account the environment. Yeah. Being on the burning, like, South Florida, Bahamas sun. And she's 11. She's 11. And she's, like, floating on this, like, cork, like, piece of something that she, like, the, it may be the life preserver, something that she just saw on the ship and she knew to go grab. She's my favorite person. She's a fucking hero. But the fact that she was alive at all, you know, she had managed to find and hold on to this small cork and rope life raft as the bluebell sank. She hadn't fallen off or been attacked by a predator when Harvey was on his killing spree. And Mm -hmm. she was even able to give her name to the crew on the ship that found her, despite the fact that her body was completely shutting down. So, like, this is all a miracle. Yeah. They're like, who are you? And she's like, hey, I'm Terry Joe Dupido. That's me. Help me. My kidneys are failing. Give me water. Give me shelter. Oh my god. Also, just 11. I know. Have you met an 11 year old? Like, they. I don't, <laughs> I don't often. They're children. I don't often meet 11 year olds, no, but I, I absolutely <laughs> I mean, understand what you're getting at. It's phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, I was trash at 11. <laughs> I could have died, like, I don't know, 100 feet away from a major highway in the woods. I would have been like, I don't know, shit. Better start a fire. And then been, like, eaten by a mountain lion or something. I don't know. I don't know. 
So when the Coast Guard burst into the room and said that there was a survivor, Harvey was shocked. And finding out that Terry Joe was alive, he has this look on his face and then he states like, oh, this, this is wonderful news. And then he abruptly gets up and leaves the room. And you've got to remember, he's in the middle of, like, giving his testimony to the investigators. And he just, like, abruptly... Why would they, like... Sit the fuck down and finish? I don't know. Yeah. The next day, the manager at the Sandman Motel in Miami called the police after the maid smelled something really funny in the bathroom of room 17. But she couldn't get the door open. Behind the door was the corpse of Julian Harvey covered in self-inflicted slash wounds. He left a note addressed to his friend James Boozer, and it said, I'm a nervous wreck and just can't continue. I'm going out now. I guess I either don't like life or don't know what to do with it. And in this message, it also arranged for the adoption of Harvey's son and requested that his body be buried at sea. By Monday, November 20th, Five days after Terry Joe had been rescued and barely alive from the water, she was strong enough to undergo a prolonged interrogation by Coast Guard officials, and the story that she told them was radically different from the one that they had heard from Julian Harvey. Terry Joe's chilling account confirmed a belief that was already shared by most of the observers that the Bluebell disaster, it was not an accident. One Coast Guard official put it that it was an act of mass murder by a berserk man. Terry Joe's version of events on that night on the Bluebell never changed. She told her story once, and it was always the same. A picture of her from when she was being rescued was featured in Life magazine, and they actually devoted a full 10 pages to the story of the death ship, as they called it, and the miraculous rescue of the only surviving passenger. Terry Joe was later sent to live with her extended family in Wisconsin, and she was just trying really hard to get back to a normal life. And it would be decades before she would talk to anyone, aside from the Coast Guard investigators who visited her hospital room in Florida, about what actually happened that night. So in 2010, she co-authored a book with psychologist Richard D. Logan, and it was called Alone, Orphaned on the Ocean. And in the book, Richard theorized that Harvey had murdered his wife in their cabin on the Bluebell that night possibly for the insurance money, and that he intended to tell the Dupereau family that she'd fallen overboard. He suspected that Mary put up more of a fight than Harvey expected, and this alerted Dr. Dupereau, who went to go investigate and see what was happening. Harvey then stabbed Dupereau with the knife that Terry Joe would later remember seeing on the deck, and then killed Mrs. Dupereau and Brian. Again, this is all speculation, but little Renee most likely drowned, although it's never been made clear whether she fell, if she was thrown overboard, or if she was forcibly held under the water by Harvey before he dragged her to the lifeboat and tied it to the dinghy so he would have a story to tell. Terry Jo went on to live a full life. She fell in love. She had children. She had grandchildren. She moved around and she even found work that she really loved with Wisconsin's Department of Natural Resources as a water management specialist. So she really did, after such 
a tragedy go on to have a really fulfilling life. God, she survived so much adversity and so many, just so much shit against her. I know. Like, she had every reason to die that day, and she didn't. She's a survivor, and... She's, like I said, she's my favorite person. So that is the story of the murders on the Bluebell. And unfortunately, with Harvey committing suicide, we may never know what truly happened that night and why he did what he did. There's no one that can really say. I mean, Terry Joe was 11 years old. Exactly. And with him killing himself, he, he just, he takes so much of the what happened with him. I mean... We have an idea due to the book. That's it. Oh, and that's the analysis that's... of a psychologist that's trying to make exactly. sense of what happened, but that doesn't mean it's evidence. No, because all the facts that we have to this day are she heard her brother scream, she heard footsteps, she saw blood and she saw a knife, and she saw her parents dead. Well, her mom and, and then, her brother. You know, she saw her mom and her brother. Or her mom and yeah. her brother. And, you know, she was pushing stuff. But, like, of like what happened? She never saw her dad. She never saw his wife. She, she never saw her little sister. I mean, they found her body, so they, they can obviously tell she drowned. Maybe not the mechanism at which she did. Yeah. But there's just so much mystery surrounding it and with him completing suicide there's no way you know he knew what happened he's the only person who had those answers and he took them with him he did and i assume at at this point because you didn't mention it that they probably haven't found the wreck of the bluebell or the victim's bodies have they no, not that I could find. Shit. All right. Well, are you ready to jump into postmortem? Let's do it. I'm going to start this one out. While, I mean, God, both of our cases were really intense. But I will say, I think yours with the stupid fucking criminals and the fact that they murdered four people that they just picked randomly and how torture was involved and how violent those deaths were. I I really do think you had the more intense uh, murder.ca case. So I, I'm not going to say I disagree, but your case, because, you know, it had Terry Joe, it had this 11 year old girl who, despite literally all odds, survived and like to this day is living with those experiences you know we talk about during my case we talked about how much an instant death versus a suffering one right you know the impact of that and you know terry joe's is almost the suffering doesn't there there isn't an end to it she was there she's the only survivor of her family being murdered you know she heard her brother's death scream she saw her mother and her brother's body. She saw the blood. And, and then she went through, separated from that, she went through her own survival. Three and a half days alone on the sea in the burning sun. No water. Maybe there's sharks. I don't fucking know. I mean, it's the ocean. There are sharks. And, you know, so she, she's laying there probably going over everything that she witnessed and also everything she's going through well i mean you say it like that and i kind of feel like maybe i did win maybe i did bring a more intense case 
So I said, I, I'm not going to disagree with you because Terry Joe went through all that, but she survived. No one survived on the Challenger. They were bound and held there at gunpoint, basically knowing that they were probably about to die for an hour while they're robbed. And then they were killed because... Opportunity. No reason. There there wasn't any reason. I mean, the captain staying alive. To me, the idea, what gets me about my case, or maybe not what gets me, but one of the standout things of my case is just the idea and the image of him lying there, slowly drowning in his own blood, and just the silence. Because his three friends are dead. The murderers have all left. It's just him, and he's been shot. He, he can't do anything. He can't get up. He He's dying, and he knows it. And he has to sit there and wait for it. That's torture. And I will say, yeah. like I said during your case, the fact that each of them had to watch their friends pass. Like, the only one who yeah. didn't have to watch their friends die was the first one that was killed. Everyone else had to watch but someone he, be killed. Well, and... Thomas Williams, you know, because he was killed first, he he didn't technically have to watch anyone die, but he did have to sit there for an hour with his friends being tied up, bound and gagged at gunpoint, knowing that at any moment, any of them could be shot. Well, I will stick with what I said. I think you had the more intense case, so I will pick the topic for next week, and I actually already have something in mind, so... um Okay. But I I liked this episode. This was really me too. This was murdered at sea. I don't want to get on a boat. No, it's terrifying. Also, first off, the fact that neither of us went with cruise ships, I think it's very a thing I want to know. Okay, but that's because cruise ship murders are always very mysterious. Because when someone dies on a cruise ship, a lot of the times they like fell off the side, and it's like, were they pushed? Were they not? Yeah, I feel like cruise ships are big enough that it's either one person disappeared and no one saw anything or one person was like shot or pushed off the side and people saw and that's and that's that that's that so yeah okay fair definitely y'all side note if y'all can find the i survived and actually i think it's from the discovery channel show i shouldn't be alive oh i think it's the first episode i don't know if you find one or remember one where a survivor talks about a rubber zodiac dinghy that's the one i'm talking about if you find it online on youtube or something link it to me because it's a really good episode it's horrifying Honestly, now that I think about it, it might be all these things. It probably also is part of a documentary from Shark Week because of subject matter. Oh, yeah. Like, let's be real. Because I I think it's also part of an episode of there, there was a guy on a military ship that sank. And he was one of, like, 33 survivors because it sank. I want to say either the South China Sea or the Philippine Sea might totally be making that up. But um, he was on a military ship. I think he was American. It sank. There were like 33 survivors. And the entire night he was clinging to wreckage and was talking about how he just was listening to all his friends be eaten by sharks. Um, That's so scary. And, oh my god. Yeah. So because I, I associate the two, I feel 
feel like it was something in Shark Week. I feel like it was like a two-part something in Shark Week. Anyways, don't be scared of sharks. You're much more likely to die from basically anything other than sharks. They're friendly fish who are most likely scared of you. Please don't kill sharks. They're dying. But regardless, I think this was an episode that... I think this was a close one. I mean, we had a tie last time, but this is one that was, like, we really did. close. I would not have fought you on either one. Like, it it was one that if you had said yours was the more intense, I would have agreed. Oh, said that mine oh was. so it was all my choice and you're telling me I just gave it to you? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So you did. Okay. But, um, thank y'all so, so much for tuning in. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, click those five stars. Let us know what you enjoyed. Let us know what you want to hear next. And yeah. We absolutely love reading your reviews. It's so sweet to hear what you pick up on, what you love. Um, it really, honestly, it like makes my day when I see a really sweet review come through. Oh, oh yeah. When we get a review, Brittany texts me or I text Brittany and she's like, read the review. I don't have an Apple phone, so I have to, like, go through websites and shit, but I absolutely do for y'all because I want to know what y'all are saying, and we fucking love y'all. Y'all melt our hearts, and while you're at it, be sure to like and follow us on social. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and you can go there and find all the content, all the wines that we've done. You can reach out to us, ask questions, recommend wines, just talk to us. Honestly, whatever you want, just check us out on social. But with that, again, thank y'all so, so much for tuning in. We love y'all. Y'all are absolutely incredible. And this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.